Imagine a church where everybody looks out for number one. Every member believes he's the most important. Every member feels that her talents are most profound and just are crying out for a platform. At business meetings, all members uh, freely vocalize their preferences and criticisms. So there are squabbles and quarrels about loud drums, too many hymns, carpet colors, sermon length, and who gets to use the gym when and who doesn't. At this church, this hypothetical church that I pray doesn't actually exist, at this church, the bathrooms don't always get cleaned. The nearest parking spots to the sanctuary are always full. Guests are not noticed, much less made to feel welcome. Children's classes are routinely canceled from lack of volunteers, and the pastor and leaders are worn out. Why? Because everybody is looking out for number one. I could go on, but let me ask a simple question, and you can just indicate by nodding your head yes or shaking your head no. Is there joy in this church? Absolutely not. In that church that I described, there is no joy. The resounding answer is no. There is no humility, there is no unity. And there is no joy. And if there is any joy, it's just a miracle of the Lord. Okay, so let's read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And this morning, I want us to consider the joy of humble unity. The joy of humble unity. Um, If you feel so inclined, I would invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a word you have for us today. In the brief time that we have to consider Philippians 2, 1 through 11, this precious and very great passage of scripture, would you give us your divine help? God, I have no interest in preaching from selfish ambition or conceit. I, have, I pray that the people seated here have no interest in listening with selfish ambition or conceit, but that we would relinquish those things 
And that that would be our experience of one another is not of self-seeking, but self-giving. Not being full of ourselves, but emptying ourselves. God, make it so in our church. Give us the joy of humble unity. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love and incline our hearts to your testimonies. We pray through Christ. Amen. You can be seated. The first thing we need to see from verses 1 and 2 is the appeal to unity. The appeal to unity. Uh, What we call, that which we call verses 1 through 4, is actually one long sentence in the Greek. Um, I'm going to divide it into two points, that one sentence, but I want you to know it's one sentence. And at its core, this long sentence is one uh, call to unity. It's an appeal to the church to have unity. And it's really one big if-then statement, right? Look at verse 1 with me. If, so if, right? Now the then is implied and it comes at the beginning of verse 2, right? If this Then this. So he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if those things exist in any measure within the church, then, is the implied word, what? Complete my joy. He wants them, the church, to whom he's writing, he wants them to fill up, to fulfill his joy to the point where it overflows. That's that word complete. Filled up to overflowing. That's what he's after. Fill up my joy. Complete my joy. So the question is, when would Paul's joy be full like that? And the answer is given in verse 2. Complete my joy by. He says it's when the members of the church are of the same mind. They have the same love. They are in full accord. That literally is like one of spirit or of one spirit, okay? And they're of one mind. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, says that they are intent on one purpose. In other words, Paul's joy will be complete when they are united, when they are unified, when they have unity, This is an appeal for unity. He wants, Paul is asking that each member of this church be single-minded in devotion to Jesus and therefore be resolved to live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, we've seen this. If you've read Philippians before, you can go back to chapter 1, verse 27, and you can see that this, uh, what we're studying here, actually falls under Uh, this kind of banner of Philippians 1.27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he's asking them to be single-minded in their devotion to Christ and that they would live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And what does it look like? Verse 27 right there, unity. That's their lives will be worthy of the gospel of Christ 
when they are united. And Paul's joy will be complete when they're united. What Paul's really asking them, like he's assuming, I know he says if, if these things exist, but that's, a, that's, his, that's his like pastoral way of saying, since these things are true of you and in you, to whatever measure they're true, right? Since you have encouragement because you believe in Christ, from Christ, since you are comforted by the fact that God loves you, since you have fellowship and participation in the Holy Spirit, and since you have affection for Christ and for your church, and you have sympathy for the people around you, since you have those things, then let them have their full effect in you by bringing you to unity. It's clear that Paul's joy in some measure is tied to their unity. So from that, we can actually deduce that joy, uh, or so that unity should be a joy to God's people. Right? If, it, if, if it's making Paul's heart rejoice when the church is unified, it should also make our hearts rejoice when we experience unity as a church. But what might threaten unity? What might jeopardize joy? Well, in 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, Paul spells out the threat to unity. That's the second thing that I want you to see, the threat to unity. Verses 3 and 4. So Paul continues his very long sentence by mentioning what threatens unity. Uh, What he charges them to avoid in verses 3 and 4 is instructive. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That word conceit is a compound word, just two words mashed together, and it's literally empty glory. The King James Version of the Bible renders it vain glory. Vain, empty. It's empty glory. Like you're puffed up with a sense of yourself and you have no reason to be puffed up with a sense of yourself. It's empty. It's vain. Self-glory is vain glory. He says, don't only look to your own interests. That's his negative way of saying it. He also states it positively. He says, in humility, count or regard or consider or judge other people, others, more significant, more important than yourselves. So if we look closely at what Paul says in verses 3 and 4, we will see what threatens unity. Right? That's the question. What threatens unity? And the answer is when the members of the church operate from selfish ambition, from conceit, an unnecessarily inflated sense of self. They consider self more significant than others and they look only to their own interests. When everybody looks out for number one, Romans 12, 3, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. In other words, what's the greatest threat to unity? The members of the church represent the greatest potential threat to unity. Like if I asked you before we started our time together, if I just gave everybody a piece of paper and said, I want you to write down the top 10 things that would threaten the unity of the church, 
I think you would probably come up with things like false doctrine, different interpretation of the Bible, generational differences, church background, age, politics. Or maybe you'd get a little closer and you'd say something like preferences. But I don't think anybody would have walked in here this morning and said the biggest threat to the church is to the unity of the church is me. But what Paul is saying by talking about selfish ambition and conceit and looking out for our own interests and regarding ourselves more significant than others, what Paul is saying is when he's asked proverbially this question, what's the greatest threat to the unity of the church? He says, you are. The possibility that you, that I, might indulge our self-centered impulses is the greatest threat to unity. You should walk in here assuming that you are the biggest threat to the unity of the church. And you should commit to fight. Because only when you get self out of the way can you actually help foster unity because self-sins, right? Ambition, conceit, self-interest, self-preservation, self-love, self-sufficiency, self-promotion, they have no place in God's church, right? He says it here, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't pray with selfish ambition. As good as prayer is, don't pray with it. Don't preach with selfish ambition. He's actually, if you look back at chapter one, verses 15 through 18, he's talked about people that preach out of selfish ambition and rivalry as he's in prison. They're trying to afflict him in imprisonment, right? Don't preach from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't come to church with selfish ambition or conceit. Don't serve, don't make meals for people with selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything. He says, do nothing according to those things. For the church that would have this joy imparting, Christ-honoring unity, its members must do nothing from selfish ambition. The path of selfish ambition goes nowhere good. And as a matter of fact, it leads to everything bad. And don't take my word for it. Let's look at a passage that our pastor, uh, John, a couple of weeks ago talked about in James 3. Look at James 3 with me. Right after Hebrews. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic We can stop there. We're not. We're going to read the next verse that I really think drives it home. But he's saying selfish ambition is not from God. That wisdom is demonic. And then he says, verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, where those things are present, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Selfish ambition is never alone. It's always found with its friends, disorder, and every vile practice. 
it leads nowhere good, and therefore it has no place in God's church. I hope that you see this. Yourself has to get out of the way for the church to thrive. And you can look at James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions that are at war within you? You. Like the biggest threat when you walk in, the biggest threat is not outside of you. It is within you. The potential that you might indulge the flesh. That is the biggest threat. And what Paul has said, he's, he's given, he's planted in verse 3, the remedy. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's the remedy to all of this. In humility. We need humility. He's, Paul is telling us here that genuine humility is a necessary ingredient of joy-producing unity. And so now the question is, where does that humility come from? So let's look at verses 5 through 11 and let's see the way of unity. We've looked at an appeal to unity. We've looked at the threat to unity. And now let's look at the way to unity. Humility is the way of unity. You see that in verses 3 and you're going to see it in 7 and 8. To solidify the point that he's making, Paul now employs what many scholars believe is an ancient early church Christ hymn. And what he does in, you, in, in quoting this hymn is he shows that Jesus is both the source of humility and the perfect example of humility. He's the source and the perfect example. So let's take those one at a time. Jesus is the source of humility because in our post-Genesis 3 sinful, rebellious, fallen state, we are incapable of humbling ourselves. We're naturally inclined toward selfish ambition, conceit, and all of the self-sins that I mentioned earlier and those like them. And and Paul knows this. And I really believe that, that that's why In verse 5, when he transitions to start talking about something else as the way toward humility and unity, he doesn't say, okay, so now you know, so just go be more humble. Like grab those bootstraps, look within, and muster up what you need to be more humble. That's not what he says. He doesn't point inside them at all. He points outside to Jesus. Because he knows that true, genuine, God-honoring, biblical humility can only come from the source. And we're not it. Like, praise God that we're not it. Because if we're it, we're sunk. But Jesus is. He's the source of humility. Jesus is his His humble, obedient life is the wellspring of humility. His work in His living, dying, and rising, His work enables us to humble ourselves. And then 1 Corinthians 2.16, I don't have this on the screen, but it tells us that the Spirit of God actually gives us the mind of Christ. So when He says, have this mind 
in you, like have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, or as the ESV says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have the mind of Christ. When the Spirit indwells a person, we have the humble mind of Christ. So we can have this mindset because he's the source of it. But he's not just the source. He's also the perfect example of humility, of what it looks like. We should imitate him, right? Throughout the New Testament, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We should imitate Jesus. So our humility should imitate his. And so the question is, how deep down did his humility go? And this is where this Christ hymn comes in. The first thing that we need to do is we need to see how exalted he was so that we see how far down into the depths he really went. Okay, so here's what it says. Verse 5, I'm reading again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay? From those things, we, learn, we hear two things. And I want you to know, Paul words it, or this hymn, words it in the past tense. But we need to understand the past tense doesn't nullify the present reality. So the fact that he was in the form of God does not mean that he's not now in the form of God. The fact that he was equal with God doesn't mean he's not now equal with God. It's always that he's equal with God. He was always in the form of God. Okay? So with that out of the way, it says he was in the form of God. He was equal with God. He was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Son is, is, is God. And so from there, we're now enabled to see the depths of his humility. Even though he was God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Now, what does that word mean? The literal translation would be something like seized or robbed, maybe, maybe clutched or clung to, some commentators say. So when we think of someone stealing or seizing something, robbing, we think of something they don't have, they take, and now they have. And that's not what's going on here. Jesus was always equal with God. But he, what he's saying is, if, if he were to say, to, to use his divinity, his equality with God, if he were to use that as an excuse to avoid obedience, he is seizing it in a wrong way. He's clinging to it in a wrong way. He's clutching it and grasping to it uh, in a wrong way, a way that is unbecoming of the Son of God. Right, so... Um, He chose not to seize it and cling to it for his own selfish purposes. He didn't claim it as an excuse to avoid the cross. He didn't say something like, I am the co-eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and I am too good to live a life on that earth and to die a death at the hands of sinners. I'm too good for that. I won't do it. That is not the posture of the son in eternity past. And praise God that it wasn't. He didn't, he didn't, uh, the the CSB, I think, nails the translation on this. And I've got it up there. I've got it compared to the ESV. Um, That that word grasp, the sense of it, it doesn't translate the word itself, but the sense of the word it gives so well. He didn't uh, consider equality with God as something to be exploited. That is used 
for his own advantages in the wrong way, but rather used to serve his father and his people. Okay, that's like Jesus used his divinity and his equality with God for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of self. And that is what is being said in this whole passage. Just got to pause for a second. Do you sense the beauty of Jesus? Like I, I, I wish I was able to put to words the things that this does to my soul when I think about the beauty of what Jesus did for someone like me. In all of my sins, in all of my shortcomings, in my limitedness, he came. He didn't say, I'm too good to serve Zach Mullis, that guy. But he came for my sake and yours. Praise his name. The wonder and the beauty of what is here. I just want you to see it. He did not consider it something to be exploited. What did he do instead? It says, I mean, it just, like, it just gets better. The more you read, he emptied himself. Now, what does that mean? We have to be really careful here. Because it says he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And so you could easily make the connection that says, well, he didn't consider it equality with God something to be grasped, so he gave up his equality with God. That is not what happened. We dare not ever say that the Son in any way ceased to be God. Rather, it wasn't something he necessarily gave up as much as something he assumed. He became man. He took on humanity. He took on flesh to his godness. He became the God-man. Okay. So we can't say that he emptied himself of his divinity or his glory or his power or any essential attribute of God. And the phrases that come after are very helpful in limiting and being guardrails against heresy here. It's what it says. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave or a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He took a slave's form and became human. He gave up the continual visible manifestation of his glory and power. He assumed the limits of a body and geography and time and growth and learning and ultimately became eligible for death, as I've heard one pastor say. But he did not cease to be God in emptying himself. And so what's going on here in all of this beauty and wonder and, and frankly, mystery and glory? What's going on here is that Paul is presenting Jesus as the exact opposite of selfish ambition and conceit. Right? You think of full of self versus emptying self. Self-exaltation versus humbling self. Defiance versus obedience. We're going to get there in just a minute. Self-preservation versus self-giving. Jesus is the opposite of all the things that threaten the unity of the church. In humility, he counted others, his father and his people, more significant than himself and obeyed all the way unto death, 
choosing death on a cross over disobedience. Paradoxically, when he was bearing the wrath of God against sin in its fullest measure, he was actually the most well-pleasing to his father because he was at the height of his obedience or he was at the depth of his humility at that moment. So Paul is using this Christ hymn to say, here is a humility that drove the Son to become a man, to leave a throne in heaven for a cross in Jerusalem, to obey unto death and to suffer at the Father's will for the salvation of sinners. And he says, that's the mindset that you adopt. That's the humility that yours is meant to emulate. It's a mindset that says, I am not too important to clean toilets, pick up trash. And this, this, this is, we are talking about the church, but this is true in every sphere of your life. As a roommate, college students, as a son or a daughter, kids, young adults, as a husband, as a wife, as a coworker, as an employee, as a boss. This applies to all of it, right? So what I'm about to say applies to all of it. I am not too important to clean toilets, pick up trash, run copies, bounce babies, change diapers. That's just one where I'm living currently. <laughs> Teach a children's class. Park far away from the front door. On a rainy day, do dishes, run PowerPoint, make coffee, or lock up after a meeting. A servant is not greater than his master. If he emptied himself and humbled himself, how could we turn around who are full of him and then still be full of self and exalt ourselves? If he obeyed the Father unto death, shouldn't we obey the Father unto death? Shouldn't we choose death over disobedience? If he gave himself for the good of sinners. Yes, even sinners, right? You, like we can't even use the excuse that like I'll serve God, but man, his people are so messed up. I'm not serving them. Do you know what they said about me? Do you know what they did to me? Do you know what they did, period? Like we don't get to make that excuse. If Jesus served sinners, the worst of us, right, the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If he came to serve sinners and a servant is not greater than his master and he's our master, we get the privilege of giving ourselves away and spending our lives to serve sinners. We must choose to take the low place of humility with our Savior. Now, pretending that Paul was still alive, you might go and sit in his pastor's office on his couch and say, Paul, this humility business really feels like death. And I believe that Paul would look across his desk and smile a warm pastoral smile at you and say, that's because it is. 
It, it is death. It's death to yourself, death of yourself to benefit your church. It's dying to your preferences, your opinions, your desires, your way of doing things, your convenience, your calendar, all of it. Death to you because Jesus is worthy. It is death to self that gets the self out of the way to make us a blessing to the church, to foster unity within the church. It was like that for Jesus. It's like that for us. Humility and self-sacrifice are sometimes going to feel like, well, sacrifice. But I don't think that's all that Paul would say. And it's not all that Paul says here. Because we have verses 9 through 11. So this is what Paul would say, I think. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think. It is death that gets the self out of the way. But when you die this death, what you get is life. What you get is life. I mean, real life. Look at verses 9 through 11. Paul shows us that humbling ourselves is not only the way of unity, but it's also the path toward exaltation. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. The cross precedes the crown. Jesus chose this path willingly taking the low place and relinquishing his privileges to obey his Father. And from the Father, he received everything. Every, he received everything. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He gets it all. And not in a sense that he didn't have it all. But there's, and it's not like he wasn't highly exalted before, but there's something wonderful and mystifying about the fact that he gave himself and he obeyed and fully pleased his father in real time and space and history and somehow if it were possible got a higher exaltation than the one that he previously enjoyed which is the highest place of all he was already the highest place of all and now he gets to go higher than the highest place of all in some way that mystifies me and i have exhausted my ability to talk about this at this point so i'm just going to move on Before I really get in trouble, John Chrysostom said um, that the degree of his exaltation corresponds to the depth of his humility. He was exalted, if possible, to a higher position than before because of the suffering of his death. And all of it ultimately is for the glory of his Father, Jesus the Son, who is God, co-eternal, co-equal in glory and majesty and authority and dominion and power, all he wants is to glorify his father. And that's what he exists for. <clears throat> we have every reason to humble ourselves, both because, even especially looking at this, I just hope that you have a sense. Man, I'm just not as awesome as I like to think sometimes. 
I'm just, I'm just not as, I'm not so great as I fancy myself. So we have that reason to humble ourselves. But we also have the promises and warnings that God makes to his people. Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. Excuse me. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees here. And these, these are his like seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Um, he talks about the fact that they love to puff themselves up. They like greetings and like the seats of honor at the festivals. They like to be called rabbi and teacher and father and all these. Like they love the titles. Like they, it makes them feel good. It makes them feel important. It makes them feel like they finally have the importance they deserve. Okay. And he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And then he says this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That's called a divine passive. And so what, mean, what that means is that God is humbling that person. If that person exalts himself or herself, God will humble that person. And then it says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Another divine passive. God will exalt that person. This, I mean, this serves as a promise and a warning. It serves, as a, it serves as a warning to our propensity and desire and proclivity to exalt ourselves. And it serves as the greatest possible incentive for our humbling of ourselves. And this is not just this one-off verse that happens in, this, in an obscure place in the New Testament. It also happens in the book of Luke. And it also is picked up by both James and Peter. So look at James 4.10. I'm just going to read it up here. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So there's a choice that all of us have. There's a choice right now. Self-exaltation now and God's humiliation forever or self-humiliation, self-humbling now, and God's exaltation forever. That's what these verses are teaching us. That's what Philippians 2 holds out for us. Let me speak to those in this room who would say that you don't believe in Jesus. You are living for your own glory in selfish ambition, in conceit and pride, and you're seeking your own interests. If you continue in self-exaltation and you do not die this death of humility, you will perish, humbled by God in eternity. You must recognize that you are not enough. See that you have offended a righteous God. Acknowledge and confess your sins and repent. Turn around and walk the opposite way. Trust yourself to Jesus and his finished work on the cross and resurrection and die to yourself. Bend your knee to Jesus and proclaim him as Lord now in humility and know that God will exalt you with and through Christ in his time and his way. Let me close with an application to our church. I heard this from a dear brother years ago, and, uh, and it kind of turns my opening illustration on its head. 
Imagine a church that perceives the beauty of Jesus' humility and believes the good news so deeply that the members of that church want to be just like him. In that church, every member abandons her preferences and needs for the sake of those around her. Each member radically commits himself to the good of his brothers and sisters. Everybody, of course imperfectly, right? Everybody though, in humility ranks the interests of the spiritual family above those of the self. Everybody fights for others and not for themselves. So what happens in that process? Well, a number of things happen in that process. The first of which is everybody's needs get met. Everybody gets their needs met in that scenario. Nobody needs to fight for his own way or her own needs. Those are automatically met by an army of others looking out for them. So what happens, if you think of the, what I started with, the, the fake church and the fake church now, hopefully not the fake church, hopefully this church. But if you, if you think about that, everybody trades one person looking out for me for 99 spirit-filled people looking out for me. No matter how you slice it, that's a good trade. That's a trade I want to make. When I am looking out for everybody else's interests over my own, and so are you, we both serve each other's best interests. I want to have this sort of wonderful, beautiful humility. Even if it it feels like death, even if it is death, I want this type of Christ-honoring humility and the unity that flows from it. I know that's only possible because of Jesus. This would be a supernatural work of God, and it would be a spirit-led church. I want that, don't you? When that happens, brothers and sisters, Paul won't be the only one whose joy is filled up to overflowing. That's the other thing that happens. Ours will be too. There won't be the discord and the disunion and the fighting and the clawing and scraping for my own way, my myself is abandoned for the good of others, as is everybody else's self. And we're all serving each other's needs and all of us have joy and peace and every good fruit of the Holy Spirit. That is the humble, uh, that is the joy of humble unity. And I pray that it comes increasingly to mark our church. Let's pray. Father, what a great work it would be for you to give us this type of joy because of humble unity. We have need of humility. Let us look to Christ for it. Move in our midst and work this supernatural humility within us. Lord, we thank you for this brief time in your word and I pray that you would 
make it useful and fruitful and beneficial for us. If there are those that do not know you, that exist under your condemnation, God, would you turn their hearts to you so that they'd set their eyes on you in faith and cease to be children of wrath and become children of God. Lord, work this miracle, please. Jesus, you're our good shepherd. And we believe that you will give us everything that we need. And so we entrust ourselves to you and make this prayer in your name. Amen.